0: Okay, so today's a little different, uh, but it's actually a super, super cool Sunday that we haven't done for a little while, and so for those of you that maybe are new and have never experienced this, uh, what we've done last week and then this week, we've just simply said, hey, write down your questions, and then we're going to take the morning and answer those questions as much as we can, as best we can, and then, honestly, there were some amazing questions this time. And we're actually uh, going to build some series to say, boy, this got asked over and over and over again. We better, we better take some time and actually talk about that more than just four or five minutes on a Sunday. So if you came and, and if you're one of those people that goes, I have to hear a sermon every Sunday, you need to know today's going to be a little more like a Bible study than it is a sermon because we're just going to work through as many questions that you asked uh, as we possibly can. And I just want to say hi to the uh, group out there at Santan. Santan asked some of the best questions this time. Uh, you'll know it because they're on the yellow uh, slips, And but we're just thrilled to have you guys doing this with us too, and first time uh, for you guys. So here we go. We're just going to dig in. Uh, we're going to take your questions, go through them. Every hour today is going to be different. And so just in case, uh, and so that you know, next hour, a couple of the questions we already know we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about divorce, uh, when can you, when shouldn't you, uh, we're going to talk about dinosaurs, uh, that was a big deal, people are very worried about dinosaurs, I don't know why, they're dead, they're dead, I don't know why we're so worried about them, but we are, and so we're going to talk about dinosaurs, once saved, always saved, we're going to talk about that next hour, and then an interesting one was, how does Jesus dying on the cross work, I mean, how does that actually work? help us that Jesus, I mean, how does that work? So that was next hour, we're going to cover all those and and a bunch more. Okay, so here we go. These are this hour's uh, questions. Here we go. Uh, My dad wants to know where you buy your shirts. (laughs) Now here's the worst part about that question. Uh, The person asking it was 60, so their dad is 80 and (laughs) Okay. Uh, The answer, by the way, is buckle. Okay. All right. Uh, Okay. Every religion claims to have a true book or a Bible of their own. How do we know that our Bible is true, the true book, and not a fictional account of the past? That's a great question. Okay. So grab your Bibles and go with me to Matthew chapter 5. And here's the deal, guys, you're going to want your Bibles today, and get your fingers ready, we're going to do a lot of turning uh, in Scripture, and it, it, it's just a great reminder that you and I should come every single Sunday with our Bibles in tow. You want, you want to know that what I'm saying is not Lynn's opinion, that it's actually God's Word. So uh, have your Bibles, uh, today you may have to listen in, but bring your Bibles every Sunday. Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 18. You got it? You're good. Thank you. Thank, thank Yeah. Okay. Here's what it says. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. This is Jesus. This is what Jesus says about Scripture. So, you get that one of the reasons that you and I uh, believe that scripture is true and authoritative is because we believe that Jesus is, who Jesus said he was. And Jesus said this about the Bible, okay? Uh, verse chap- uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, though the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So you get what Jesus says about the Bible. He says, look, it is more likely that the earth would stop turning on its accent. It is more likely that the stars would fall from the sky than that you would find, you ready for this? The least stroke of the pen, the crossing of a T, the dotting of an I to be found errant within Scripture. Now that's a pretty strong combination by Jesus. And I'm going to suggest to you that one of the most powerful things about this is simply this. The Bible says, look, don't take this as a good reference book. It, that's not what we're saying. This isn't good, healthy knowledge. Okay, this isn't confused Writing down uh, platitudes and proverbs to help your life. Scripture says, "No, no, 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 no." Matter of fact, Second Timothy chapter three verse sixteen says, "Every word in Scripture." You ready for this? Is God breathed. In other words, what it's saying is, is that as the authors of Scripture wrote it down, they weren't just writing down their own, their own words, it's as if Jesus was leaning over their shoulder, whispering in their ear, and the very breath of God was there against their neck while they were penning Scripture. Now here's the thing that makes this so radical and so amazing. If that's true, if that's true, the Bible claims about itself what we call inerrancy. That there are no mistakes because it is God-written. Well, guys, here's the easy answer to that. All you have to do to prove that the Bible's not true is find the first mistake. And the moment you find the first mistake, then you know the Bible lied about itself, and you know that Jesus was mistaken, and everything that you and I believe goes tumbling down because the Bible claims to be God-breathed. So do this. Find the first mistake. You, you realize that men and women for thousands and thousands of years, ever since that passage, have been looking for the first mistake. Guess what? It's not there. So by the very fact that, here's the deal, you and I know that men can't write stuff down without making mistakes. Matter of fact, scripture was written over thousands of years by people who never met each other, and yet they don't contradict each other. I counterdict my administrative assistant every day. And yet you can't find it in Scripture. And people who were, some were kings and some were lowly fishermen, never contradict, never make a mistake, never make an error. And the only answer for that, guys, is that it is God-breathed. This is not true of other books. I'm going to tell you that when you get to the Koran, when you get to the Book of Mormon, it is replete with mistakes. You can find them before you flip through the first four pages. They are everywhere because they have human authorship. I'll give you a real quick one. Uh, Book of Mormon uh, says uh, that the story of the Book of Mormon, the whole premise of the Book of Mormon, is that when Jesus died, for those three days, he actually came to America and preached to the lost tribes of Israel in America, who happened to be the Aztec Indians. That's, they were the lost tribes. Uh, first off, I didn't know any tribes were lost. But he came for three days. And the other part I can't quite figure out is why did, why did, the, why did Israel get three years and the lost tribes only got three days? I, I don't know. I, it, but the Indians, the ancient Indians, uh, mostly South American, were supposed to be the lost tribes of Israel. Now, here's the thing it's real easy to figure out. With modern DNA, all you do is go back and test, and you say, if this is true, if this is even halfway accurate, then we're going to find Jewish blood, we're going to find Jewish DNA within those tribes. Anybody want to take any guesses? Not one ounce of Semitic blood. Matter of fact, it's one of the things that right now within Mormonism is causing horrible convulsions. Because the very premise of the entire book is that it's a book written about Jesus' visit to America. And I'm just telling you, you can't find another quote-unquote religious book that is inerrant without mistake and the very fact that you can't find it has to say to you and me the only way you get a book without mistakes is if God writes it because people make mistakes all the time okay so there you go. Well, we could go back and talk about history. Uh, you realize for years and years and years, historians said David was never even a real king. We found archaeological evidence. People said the walls of Jericho couldn't have fallen out. When they found the walls of Jericho, they had found. Fa- I mean, you just can't even believe the archaeological evidence that supports the absolute historic accuracy of Scripture. It's just all over the place. You and I should never, ever, ever blink when it comes to the Bible being accurate and true? All right, good question. Thank you. All right. Whew! Uh, whatever happened to Joseph, Jesus' dad? He died. Uh, <laughs> just thinking, you know, that's probably my best guess at it. Yeah. All right, here's, a, here's a, a Santan question. All right. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 through 7... Why would this man be killed when uh, all others sin daily and are allowed to live? Isn't all sin the same in the eyes of God? So let's go there real, real quickly. Uh, 2 Samuel. And if you're not real familiar, 2 Samuel is going to be toward the front of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. I skipped a few books there. 2nd Samuel chapter 6 Here's what happens it's an interesting passage. Here the ark of the covenant, so you remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay. So th- there really was an Ark of the Covenant. It actually had pieces of the Ten Commandments in it. had some of the manna that they had taken while they were in the wilderness. It- it's what sat in the Holy of Holies. It was called the mercy seat. So the Ark of the Covenant was with Israel. That box really, really did exist uh, at one point. We have no idea where it is or if it's been destroyed. We don't know. But it did exist at one point. And part of God's command was no one is to touch this thing. No one is to because, ready, God is holy and you're not. And you are not to touch this thing because it represents the presence of God with us. Do not, do not, do not touch it. So here it is at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6. Uh, they're moving the ark. They're bringing it back to Jerusalem. They're moving the ark. I should tell you that it's on a, it's on a wagon. And it says, and, and when they came to the threshing floor at Nacon, Yuza reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled and the Lord's anger Uh, burned against Yuza because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died beside the Ark of God. So you get the moment. They're moving the Ark back. God said, don't ever touch it. Don't ever, 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 ever touch it. They're moving it back on a cart, which, by the way, they shouldn't have been doing. The proper way to move the Ark is they had dowels that were supposed to go through, rings on the side of the Ark, and the priests were to carry it. And they've chosen to disobey that command. They're bringing it back on a cart. And as they're doing that, the cart hits a pothole... The, the oxen stumble, it says, and now the ark is tipping, and this guy reaches out to touch the ark. God says, dude, I don't think I could have been any clearer, and he falls over and dies. Everyone's going, whoa, Nelly, you know, okay? And so his question is, is, is hey, wait a minute, why is that guy getting killed and other people sin. And they don't get killed immediately when they sin. And then, next part of the question. This is the part you and I got to catch. Because, 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 isn't all sin the same? So why would he get killed for that sin when I've sinned and I don't get killed? Why, Why would God do that? So let me ask you this question. Who told you that all sin was the same? Who told you that? It's interesting because an awful lot of Christians believe this, but where did we get the, can you even give me a passage that comes anywhere close to saying that all sin is the same? Okay, so you guys get to go look for that, you guys get to have fun, because I don't think it's there, uh, because I, I just can't find, I think it's an absolutely unbiblical principle. The Bible never says that all sin is the same. And I think what happens is a lot of times Christians get freaked out and they go, look, we, you know, all sin is bad. And you're right, all sin is bad. And all sin is evil and all sin separates us from God. You're right. But I think they're afraid that we're all going to walk around and go, well, it was just a little sin, so who cares? No such thing, guys. No such thing in that regard because here's what you got to get. That's, that's like saying if somebody threw up in the punch bowl and you dipped out a cup for the punch bowl and he said, oh, there's just a couple floaties, no big deal. okay so when it comes to sin you're right in this regard any floaties are too many floaties that's just that's just that is a good principle but let's just be honest you could take a scoop and there could be a lot of floaties in there right I mean so not every scoop is equal and not all sins are the same guys I'm just telling you they're not all the same someone who moths a child commits a sin that is different in magnitude and in punishment uh, from someone who tells a lie i they just are. Matter of fact, grab your Bibles because I think uh, scripture supports this. Uh, go with me to Luke chapter 10. If you're not familiar, go to the back of your Bible, work to the left. It's a New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 10. Okay, now you got to put on your thinking hats, okay, so follow me and think. Here we go, Luke chapter 10, verse 13, here's what it says. This is Jesus talking, ready? Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethesda, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be, ready for this, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Now, wait, 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 wait a minute. If, if judgment is different, in other words, if the punishment is different, that only makes sense if the sin is more grievous. In other words, we, when we spank our kids, we don't spank all our, you know, you know, sometimes they get one swat, sometimes they get ten. But can you imagine, every time you spank your kid, all right, death penalty. That's what we're doing, death penalty right here. If, if the punishment is different, then the offense must have been either bigger or smaller, and the Bible here says, whoa, whoa, whoa to you guys, because the things that have been done in your presence, if that town had seen them, they would have repented, and you didn't. Therefore, your judgment, your spanking will be a bigger spanking than their spanking, okay? Here's uh, another one, James chapter 3, so go start going to the back of your Bible now, James chapter 3. And by the way, just to say out loud, if you find a verse uh, that you feel like uh, helps in this, um, you can write it down, uh, hand it in, and and then we'll take a look at it for you. Uh, James chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. James chapter 3, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Well, wait wait a minute, how can you judge a teacher more strictly if you're not saying that when a teacher misleads, when a teacher behaves inappropriately, when a leader sins openly, it's more severe, it's, it's a bigger deal when that happens than if someone who's not in leadership does the exact same thing. So you're going to say, look, I, I don't get it, I don't, I don't get where we think all sin is the same. It's not. It's not. But what you also need to hear me say is sin is sin. Sin is sin. So you're not hearing me say on any level that there's acceptable sin or there's casual sin that you and I go, oh, it's okay. it doesn't matter. It's a little sin. You don't want any floaties in the punch. There's no such thing as acceptable sin to God. That part is true. There's no such thing as, oh, who cares sin, because because you're ready for this? Because every sin you commit had to go to the cross of Jesus and be paid for for you. And so every time that you and I willingly sin, we go, oh, it's just a little white lie. Tell tell the person on the phone that, that, that I'm not here. You realize that sin now had to be added to the pain of Jesus on the cross. There is no such thing as casual sin or acceptable sin. But there there are sins which are darker than other sins. There are sins which push our heart even further away in our relationship with God. Not all sins are created equal. Okay? They just aren't. All right. Good question. All right. uh, Is it bad for two grown adults, Christian brother and sister, to live as roommates? Now, here's what I'm assuming. I'm assuming that you're saying, hey, look, we're not in a dating relationship, this is just a financial issue, so, you know, I'm I'm just a guy, she's just a girl, we need, we need some way to figure out, you know, rent, and I couldn't find another guy to rent with, or I couldn't find another girl, and so, you know, we're just, you know, we're sharing rent. So here's what you need to know. Um, there's a verse in the Bible that says, boys and girls should not share rent. It's... Uh, There's not. There isn't. Um, But here's what you need to hear me say. Just because the Bible doesn't say to do something doesn't mean it's a wise thing to do. Okay? Just because the Bible says, hey, uh, here's the line and don't do this, that you and I as Christians want to try to get as close to the line and say, well, you know, hey... I mean, we're not doing that, so therefore it's okay. I'm just going to tell you guys, I don't think it's it's probably not unbiblical, but it's probably not very wise either. Because there's going to be moments when you're going to be down, or she's going to be down, or he's going to be depressed, someone's going to be lonely, and it's going to be late at night, and we're going to be sharing with each other. And you'll share more than you expected. It's just, it's just, it, 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 I, it's not wise to put yourself in a position where it is easy to do what you shouldn't do. Can, can I just tell you right now, hey, uh, I could have a computer that doesn't have any screens on it or any locks on it. And I could say to you, hey, I'm a pastor of a church and I'm, I'm not going to go look at pornography. I'm not going to do it. But you know what? My home computer has locks on it. It's got, if I go anywhere, it notifies my wife. Here's why. Because as strong as I believe as I am and as dedicated and committed as I am not to going and looking at some of that stuff, I want to make it as hard as possible to disappoint my Lord. And so I've got locks on my computer, even though I could argue all day long, I don't need them. I've got them there and I've got, got, it sends a message to my wife, says, hey, guess where your husband was? And I do that because I want to make it as hard as possible to do the wrong thing. To cross the line. And I stay as far away from that opportunity. Because here's the thing I know. You get me tired enough, you get me angry enough, you get me worn out enough. And I have all the capacity in the world to do something really stupid. Okay? So I'm just gonna suggest that's not wise, but here's a couple of passages I'd, I'd like for you to think about even as you consider this. Go to First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians again, go back to the back of your Bible, work to the left. First Thessalonians. Chapter five. Okay, let's go to a different one. I don't like that one. All right, First Corinthians. I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote that down. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Here's what I'm going to say out loud. You have a guy and a girl living together in the same apartment, and especially people who don't know you, and especially people who don't know your Jesus. What are they thinking? What do they think's going on in that apartment? Come on, I don't know. What would they be thinking? I don't know. <laughs> you know exactly what they're thinking. They—they've got a pretty good idea of what's happening. That—that that at the very least, you're friends with benefits. That's—you didn't know I knew that, did you? The pastor <laughs> friends with pastor knows that. So, I, you know that's what they're thinking. So tell me about your testimony for Jesus Christ when the people around you believe you're friends with benefits. It's not true. And you can stand there and go, no, no, we're not sleeping together. But here's what they're doing. They're putting it through the filter and the screen of their life. And they're going, dude, there is no way I'm living in a room with that girl and I'm not messing. There's no way that I'm with that guy and I ain't. Because they're running it through their filter. And scripture says, hey, look, look, avoid even the appearance of evil. Because at the end of the day, guys, here's what I'm going to tell you. You don't live for yourself, you live for Jesus Christ, and you live for his testimony. You don't represent just you, you represent your Savior, and you have no right to do something that causes people to despairingly look at your Savior and go, see, these Christians talk about it, but they're just like us. I mean, we all know what's going on in that apartment, right? There's a passage, that's, uh, we just turned, it's uh, First Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Here's what it says. I think it's a great principle. Be careful, be careful how you exercise your freedom. So in other words, can I do it? Yeah, you can probably do it. The Bible doesn't say you can't do it. Be careful how you exercise your freedom so that it does not become a stumbling block for the weak. So that others don't look and say, boy, I'll bet you, and I, my best guess is. And you go, well, I, I know in my heart I'm not doing anything wrong. Yeah, but the problem is they don't know that you're not doing anything wrong. And you and I have to always take into account that we don't represent just ourselves. We represent our Savior. And I'm not going to give somebody who's far from Jesus any excuse not to listen to my story. So, is it sin to do it? No, I can't say that it's sin. I can say it's probably dark gray, <laughs> and I think, I think wise Christians would probably avoid the appearance of evil, and, and I just can't believe, I cannot believe that you're telling me you cannot find anybody else in the entire world to share rent with you, besides someone of the opposite sex, and if you really have that problem, you come meet with us, we'll help you find an apartment mate. All right, there we go. Three people are clapping. The other 20,000 are living with their boyfriends. All right. (laughs) You're killing me. All right. All right. Here we go. Uh, This is a question about capital punishment. Uh, So a little different, uh, but it's a question about capital punishment. Uh, Scripture says to kill those who bear false witness, and the commandments say not to kill. How do you resolve this conflict? And matter of fact, it's not just bear. There's all sorts of passages that say, "Boy, if somebody does this, do not allow them to live." Uh, matter of fact, uh, grab your Bible real quick. Go to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. Genesis, Exodus. Exodus chapter 21, verse 14. Uh, here's what it says But if a man schemes, in other words, he plots, he, he thinks this thing through, and he kills another man deliberately, take him away from my altar. And the reason he used that thing is that in those days, a lot of times people would run to the altar and say, Look, 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 I need, I need mercy, I need sanctuary. I'm a criminal, I need sanctuary. Take him away from my altar and put him to death. And guys, here's what you need to know. The death penalty is not a political issue. It's a biblical issue. And the Bible, actually, you're going to find, if you go back and look, there's lots of times the Bible prescribes and says, if someone does this, put him to death. And here's what you need to know. It's actually God's kindness to us to say, look, here's the deal. You get someone who is capable of that the rest of society should not live every single day in absolute fear of that murderer getting out and murdering others again. This is, this is a part of just trying to keep that influence and that effect out of society. And scripture says, no, you, you, if someone does that, put them to death. You realize right now that the vast majority of crime are committed by people who've already been arrested and then released. And there are certain people that Scripture just says should not even be in our culture. We don't want them raising the next generation of kids. We don't want... If someone is capable of doing that, just remove them. You shouldn't live in that influence. You shouldn't allow that person to have that effect and that influence others. You go, Lynn, woo, Nellie. Okay? I'm not telling you to kill them. Okay? (laughs) I'm not saying that. Matter of fact, that's the issue that's at hand here. Scripture is darn, darn clear that you and I are not supposed to be killing each other. You and I do not have the right to go, dude, you're a jerk. <coughs> you know, you and I as individuals don't have that right. But you ready for this? Government does. Government does. And a matter of fact, I'm going to suggest to you that God holds accountable nations for how they deal with crime and what they tolerate within their culture. And I'm just going to suggest to you that one of the things that right now has made us less than who we were as America is that we have suddenly said, hey, if you're criminals, you get a pass. If you do that, okay, we'll put you back out within our culture. It's not a political issue, guys. It's a biblical issue. Okay? Matter of fact, grab your Bibles real quick. Go with me to Romans chapter 13. Okay. Again, all the way to the back of your Bible, and work to the left. Romans chapter thirteen. Hey. Okay. I'll let you guys figure that one out. All right, <clears throat> Romans chapter thirteen. Uh, let's start in verse 1. Here's what it says. Uh, Everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. And this is talking about our governments. Okay, uh, The authorities that exist have been established by God. And here's the part you need to get. What, what book of the Bible are we in? Romans. Talk to me about any government that has ever existed that was more perverse, more dark, more godless than the Roman Empire. And yet here is God saying, "No, no, 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 you live in subjection to the government." That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Goes on to say, "Consequently, who who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has established." And guys, here's what I'm going to say, and you go, "You know, Lynn, I don't like who the president is, or I don't like how the America, I don't care." You and I are not to rebel. You and I do not go put bombs at at the Boston Marathon. I don't care how much you don't like it. Because, 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 you, you, you know what I believe? I believe that God gives you and me the leaders we deserve. And if you don't like the leaders we have right now, you just need to know we probably have the leaders we deserve. And if our leaders lie, it probably is a reflection of our culture. It's probably a reflection of the fact that when you and I go and vote, we vote for liars, and we don't hold people accountable for character. We vote for what does our pocketbook best, and we don't vote for what's morally right and wrong scripturally. I'm going to suggest to you we've got the leaders we deserve. Okay, He who rebels, consequently, he who rebels against authority is rebelling uh, against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves For rulers do not hold terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not, you ready? He does not bear the sword. What does that mean? Government is given the authority to bring punishment. And government has every right to say, you murder somebody, It's the death penalty. I don't have that right, but government bears the sword. As a matter of fact, I'm going to suggest that governments get judged when they let evil, criminal people back into the culture of society. And you and I get judged by their behaviors too. Okay, so there you go. I'm just going to suggest that's not political, that's biblical. All right, send all of your emails to martysawyers (laughs) at cschandler.com. All right, Woo, Nelly, think. Is there a possibility of having uh, services for students during the eleven fifty-five service? This may get people who attend uh, at you know other times to move to that service because they've got students that hour. And guys, we understand, we know, and it, here's where that's coming from. We're packed. We're in overflow today uh, on the Chandler campus. We're packed. Uh, right now and we keep saying guys leave these services go to 11 go to five o'clock and and the question's a great question what if we offered students ministry stuff that hour because then people who have students could choose to go to that hour but right now you can't and here's what you need to know we know that if you have a student you you probably can't move we would rather you have your student in student ministries than that you move and take them out Please don't do that, please don't do that, please don't do that. We're asking everybody else who does not have a high school or junior high student to make the move, and not you. So every time we ask, you can go, ah, parent of a junior higher, never mind. You can just do that, okay? That's fine. Let me tell you, we could, we could do an 1155 either high school or junior high program. Let me tell you why we're not. Because one of the most powerful things that happens in the lives of our students is their relationship with other Christians. And you and I are trying to build a group, a group of believers in high school, a group of believers in junior high who have positive peer pressure on one another and deep abiding Christian relationships. So when they go to school, they go, That's Tom. And I know Tom's living for Jesus today. And I know Tom's kind of watching me. And if I get out of line, Tom's going to come say something to me. And we want those deep relationships as they go out to live life in a secular world. You and I break up their group and start meeting a couple hours. They may be in, quote-unquote, the same youth group, but they never see each other and have no relationship because one goes at 1030 and one goes at 1155. And you and I, we've decided we do not want to create that culture for our students. Not at this pivotal moment in their lives. We want them so intertwined relationally that when they walk on campus, their best friends from church are there with them. So we're doing everything. We will put tents outside before we'll do multiple hours of student ministries, because we want those relationships together. So all that to say, if you don't have a student, so you can move, you need to move. We need to empty some seats in this service so that people who are far from God and haven't figured out Jesus have a place to come. And you and I can't keep turning people away on Sunday and saying, no, you can't sit there because all the Christians filled up the seats we need to create some seats that those who are far from God and still asking questions can come. How, cr- how crazy is it for you and I to say, oh, you know what, you're trying to figure out God, why don't you come to that five o'clock hour, there's room for you. Isn't that a horrible answer? And I'm just gonna say to you, you and I, as those who are followers of Christ and further on in this journey, are the ones who've gotta make the sacrifice and go, look, that's not my favorite hour, but I'm gonna give up my seat so that somebody who doesn't know my Jesus yet has a place to come have the conversation. We need some heroes in the room right now, okay? So I'm just asking, you don't have a junior hire, you don't have a senior hire, get to 1155. That's gonna fill up and then we're all gonna go to five. Okay, all right. All right, all right, all right, we're running out of time. Last question, here we go. Um, I have been married for over 20 years. Uh, My husband does not attend church, but he is an amazing, thoughtful, caring husband and father. Are you saying that I uh, shouldn't be with him because he doesn't know G- the Jesus uh, that I know, okay? And we had that asked uh, several ways. And, and here's the answer, guys. Not a chance. Not a chance am I saying that, okay? All I have said, and what you need to hear real, real clearly, before you get married, you have the opportunity to make this decision and save yourself tons of pain in your life. And if you're a Christian, then you need to be dating only Christians, okay, and you're going, we're just dating, yes, but then you're going to be doing tonsil hockey, and then you're going to, it's just, it just, it just goes from there, I'm just telling you, and, and, and can I get, can I, let me give you this huge mound of wisdom, let me tell you something that it may not have occurred to you, but this is deep, so get on your thinking caps, you ready, deep, you marry who you date, think about that you're gonna get that one about two in the morning you're gonna go oh that was deep you marry who you date and guys i'm just gonna to say to you it is just as easy for a christian to fall in love with a non-christian someone who's pre-jesus as it is with a christian because there are people who don't know jesus that are great people they're wonderful wonderful people And if you date them, you'll fall in love with them, and then you'll go, okay, I'm just going to disobey this, and I'm going to deny it, and you'll spend years of regret. I guarantee you, and I'm not going to do this, I guarantee you right now in this room, if I just simply said every woman in this room who is right now navigating a relationship with an unsaved husband, stand up. We would have hundreds. And then I would say to them, every one of you that is easy, sit back down. And I'm going to tell you that almost none of them would sit back down. It's just a bad decision. But here's the deal. Some of us have made that decision, and that's where we find ourselves. Some of us, we were both heathens. We were just heathens, like, and then we got married. You know, it was a great. It was heathen on heathen, so it was good. And, but then one of us came to Jesus, and one of us is really serious about God, and now, you know, the other one's not. And, and, and so what do you do now? And Scripture is just super, super clear you stay in that marriage absolutely unequivocally. Okay, matter of fact, grab your Bibles and go with me to 1 Corinthians. So, again, you can go to the back of your Bible, work to the left. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, go to the back of your Bible, work to the left. You'll find 1 Corinthians. Starting in verse 12, here's what it says. To the rest of this, I say, not the Lord, okay, and just so you don't get freaked out about that, all he's saying right here is is that Paul has been talking about the issue of divorce, and he's just trying to make sure to these people, hey, Jesus and Matthew said this about divorce, this is what I'm about to tell you right now, Jesus did not address. That's all he's trying to say right now. He's not trying to say this is not Bible. He's just saying Jesus didn't talk about this part, I'm talking about this part. So here we go, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. I think that's fairly clear. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, ooh, Nellie. All right. Here's what it's saying. It is not saying that if, if an unbeliever is married to a believer, then somehow the wife's belief makes the unbeliever a Christian. That's not what it's saying here. Here's what it's saying. The word sanctified simply means to be pushed in the right direction, to move in the right direction. And all it's saying is this. If you're a believing wife living in the home with an unbelieving man, you realize you are his best chance at Jesus. You realize you are the light in the darkness for him. You are the thing pushing him to have to reconsider that decision about God. And if you remove yourself, you say, look, I'm leaving you because you're a dirty, rotten heathen. so You're taking the light out of the room. You're taking the testimony of Jesus out of that home. And then, God forbid, the kids stay with him or the kids stay with the mother who doesn't know Jesus. Then what happens to the kids? Because you've taken that influence and that presence out of the home. So scripture is absolutely clear and says, absolutely not. No, 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 no. If you find yourself in a relationship where you're married to someone who doesn't, then you, you live from God from this moment you do what you're supposed to do now. And you be a testimony. But here's what I'm going to say out loud real quick. Ladies, especially, okay? Uh, if you're, a, if you're a, a believing man and you have a wife who doesn't know Jesus yet, then I'm just going to say bring them to church. Just make that part of you. You're the one that's supposed to be setting the family structure and the family culture. You're supposed to be leading your home. Just say, look, I get it. I get you don't believe this yet. But we're going to church. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead in this way. This is what we're going to do. This is just part of what our family's going to be. But... An awful lot of the time, it's the other way around, isn't it? It's a a wife who's a believer and a husband who's not. And you don't have the ability then, wife, to say, hey, I'm going to set the family culture and we're just going to go to church and you shut up. (laughs) You you don't have that ability. And I'm just going to suggest to you, ladies, ladies, please, 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 please be very, very careful how you give testimony and witness to your husband. Because here's the deal you're going to find it very easy to tell him, hey, we need to go to church and you need to lead our home spiritually and you need Jesus in your life. That's the reason you're such a rotten person. (laughs) Men have a word for that. It's called nagging. And there's a passage in Scripture that says, better to live on the roof of your house than inside with a nagging woman. And ladies, whether you like that verse or not, it was written by a man. <laughs> and I'm just telling you, that's his perspective. And you are never going to nag him into the kingdom. Matter of fact, I've got a dear, dear friend who became a Christian. His wife was a Christian, and she was sold out for Jesus. He wasn't a Christian, and he actually sat in a service and asked Jesus in his heart one day. And I kept going up and I say, hey, Mike, have you made the decision yet? No, I haven't made it yet. Have you made the decision yet? Yeah, I made it. Finally, one day, I said, Mike, have you made the decision He goes, She knows, she want me to be like one of those super weird Christians and I'm just not ready to do that yet. So she's still praying for his salvation. Okay? Ladies, don't do it. Don't do it. You will never nag him into the kingdom. Okay? Matter of fact, 1 Peter, I won't make you go there, 1 Peter 3 says simply this to wives who are living with husbands who don't know their Jesus yet. It says, hey, keep your mouth closed. Win him by your conduct. Live Jesus so obviously in front of your man that he has no excuse. And if he gets into an argument about spiritual things, he will not be arguing with you; he'll be arguing with the Holy Spirit. Now, ladies, it's it's okay. I don't mind if you ask a question. Hey, you know, what, you know, could we go to church sometime? Or you can say, hey, what if we prayed about that? You can ask questions. It's okay. You just can't say, you ought to, you always, you never, let's go because you're a heathen. You can't do that. Okay? Or he, he, will, he will dig in his heels and not come to Jesus for a couple extra years just to spite you. So you win him, ladies, with your conduct. You win him with gently and strategically placed questions. Trust that God is better at this than you. And you know what? I can't tell you how many times, we'll close with. I can't tell you how many times I've had a wife come to me and say, This is so stupid. My husband just became a Christian. And he said, Well, how did that happen? She says, I don't know. I've been nagging him for 20 years. <laughs> he never listens to me. And then there was this guy at work who invited him to a Bible, and he said, Yes, yeah, so I'll go to the work Bible. And I'm going, What? You won't go to church with me, but you'll go to the work Bible study with that guy you don't even know. And somewhere he led him to Jesus at work. Because, 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 ladies, when you keep, when you keep pushing, men will resist. They'll think you're being a mom, and no man wants to be married to his mom. That's just weird. Okay? So w- women, win him with your conduct. Live Jesus so loud that your actions speak louder than any words you would have shared. Okay? But don't you dare leave him. Don't you dare leave him because if you leave him, who's going to be the light in that home? Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we just simply come before you today. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that sometimes it bothers us and we hear things that we don't necessarily like and 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 kind of make us feel uncomfortable, but God, here's what we're going to do. If, if we heard something today and we don't like it, instead of getting mad, we're going to go study. We're, we're going to go look in the scriptures and figure out if what we said out loud today really is what the Bible says, and if it is, uh, then, then we're going to obey. We're going to bring our lives into conformity with scripture. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.